Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks so much for gathering. Uh, real quickly, if you're a fourth and fifth grader that are in here, um, you can head out to your class uh, right now. So thanks for joining us for the service. Uh, we look forward to seeing y'all back um, when this 70-minute sermon wraps up. It's going to be great. So <clears throat> I didn't get to preach last week, so what do you expect? Anyway, um, oh, it's really good to be back with you all. Missed being with you guys last week. Thanks to Rusty uh, for preaching. Excited to dive into to God's Word. Uh, you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint. If we've never had the opportunity uh, to be introduced, my name is Jamie. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Get to open up God's word with you all. So um, as always, thanks for bringing the church into this sanctuary. The church is the people of God sent on the mission of God. So, so thankful we get to gather together. If you've gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for inviting us into your living room, dining room, wherever you happen to be tuning in from. And uh, this morning, this is week 10 in a series uh, that we're doing through the fall, taking us all the way up to Advent as we're journeying through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, of the start of the Bible. And this is what I would put before you. It really is the introduction to all of the scriptures. Like this is telling one big story. And if you miss what's happening here, then the rest of the story honestly doesn't tend to make a whole lot of sense. Like this is literally kind of laying things out and all of the themes and things that get introduced, they find their culmination in the person and work of Jesus. And my hope is that you'll see that even as we're in a text today, um, that admittedly, I'm guessing, as I read it in just a moment, you'll be like, what do we do with this? All right, um, because it's a text, it's Genesis chapter five, it's a genealogy, it's a lot of names and number of years that people lived and, and all of those things, right? Um, and I'm guessing it's probably not like your go-to, like, you know, I just need a word from the Lord this morning. I'm gonna turn to just a genealogy, right? Like we can tend to kind of skip over these things. These might be the places in a Bible reading program where you're like, yeah, I'm gonna skim the names. I don't know how to pronounce them anyway, right? And so we just move on. But friends, if the scriptures, we believe them to be living and active, and if we believe that they always shape us and form us and form us more into the image and likeness of Jesus, that includes all of the scriptures and it includes Genesis chapter five, which we'll be in together this morning. I even like to imagine that Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and he's traveling with his disciples and there as they've got questions and they don't know who he is yet at that, that moment, his identity hasn't been revealed to them. It tells us that beginning with Moses and the prophets, like he gave them this epic Bible study, just explaining how all of the scriptures pointed to him. And I have to wonder, did he walk them through Genesis chapter five? And did he explain how it points to him? And now if he did that, it's gonna be way better than anything I'm gonna bring you. But it's kind of cool to think about like all of this points to Jesus. And so we need his help this morning. So I wanna invite you to turn to Genesis chapter five. If you brought a Bible, I want you to have this in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews this morning. So you can grab one of those. It's 32 verses. It's gonna take us a bit just to read it. You can also scan the QR code in the pew in front of you and it'll bring up a menu where you can click sermon notes and the text will be there. There's space to take notes. If there's something up on the slides this morning that you're wanting to jot down, uh, those, all those details are, are in there. This is cp.church and just click that little next steps icon. But I do wanna read this in its entirety. And then we're gonna do something. We're gonna both get into the weeds of this. And we're also gonna try and do some high level big picture to help us see how does this ultimately tell the story of Jesus. And so if you are able, would you stand as I read God's word this morning? Genesis chapter five, 
It'll take us a minute to get through. It's gonna be lots of names that are difficult to pronounce, at least for me. So I will try and say them loud and confidently and just move on, all right? So Genesis chapter five, beginning in verse one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh and Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. And Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 850 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And when Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. And Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. And Mahalalel, after he fathered Jared 830 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as I made mention of, right, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of names. There's a lot of years. I mean, just to pose this question as we, as we get into this, like, what did you notice in that text, right? Um, and I realize this is more of a monologue than, than a dialogue, but if we were to sit down and to have a conversation, all right, my guess is that you, like me, as you read through this or you heard it read to you, I'm sure one of the things, right, that you noticed is these people lived a long time, right? Um, like, like I'm feeling my age at 47. I'm like, Methuselah, man, like that dude, like what's going on there? And so we might have lots of questions, all right, about like, how is that possible why do we not have those sort of lifespans now? Like what's going on? People living close to a thousand years, right? Um, and those are all fascinating questions. And if you're like, and the answer is, I have actually have no idea. Um, I don't know how those lifespans are, what, what they are, right? And we'll get answers to that someday. 
But I wanna put before you this, as we think about this particular text and all of the names and, and this pattern, right? Like you heard it over and over again, like thus all the days of you fill in the blank, right? Were, and then you fill in the blank with how many years? And then he died. And this is just on repeat, like over and over and over again, as it tells through these 10 paragraphs, these 10 generations, it's, it's telling this story. The Genesis one and two is over that people are now east of Eden. Death, never part of God's original design. But now things spiral towards chaos. Things are fracturing and splintering and people are dying. Even if they're living a long time, right? The end of the day, in the grand scheme of eternity, for as long as this earth has been going, all these things like Methuselah even, right? Oldest man who's ever lived, but still he died. And maybe we remember a couple of names from this list. Maybe you had some Bible trivia that at least remembered Methuselah. Like, yeah, who was the oldest man who ever lived? But a lot of these, these names, just like, I, I don't know. And they just, the generations, they just on and on they went. And there's just this repeated pattern. And then he died and then he died and then he died. And so if we look at this, I don't think our calling so much this morning is to focus on the longevity of life. It's actually to pay attention to a particular instance where there's a breaking of that pattern. There's a bit of a breaking of the pattern in the first couple of verses, which we'll circle back to in a moment. But there's a breaking of the pattern. We get introduced to a man named Enoch. And Enoch, it tells us fascinatingly enough, does not die. And so we'll get to that in a few minutes. But it tells us a very important detail that's not so much focused on the number of years, though it gives us some insight of that. It literally says that he walked with God. And so according to this passage here, right, which is fascinating about all the years and all that, that stuff, I would put before you that what the scriptures are trying to teach us, like Moses says he is compiling this and he's putting this together for the people back then, but also through God's spirit, inspiring this to be written for us sitting here in Altamont Springs on this particular day in late October, right? This is meant to communicate not so much about just the longevity of life or questions about years, all right? but about what a flourishing life looks like. Maybe the way to think about it is this, that the flourishing life, the life like a man named Enoch is about the walking life being greater than simply long life. Now it's not bad to desire long life. Like if you can have a life that is paired with like, I walked with God, like a long obedience in the same direction, right? As Eugene Peterson speaks of, like over a long duration of time for as many years as the Lord gives you, praise God. But I think we also recognize that there are people who might live a long time as far as duration goes, but do not follow Jesus as a disciple. They are not walking with God. And so you can keep racking up the years, but at the end of the day, what happened to Methuselah, what happened to everybody in this list, like you too will die. And unless you're walking with God, like that's the, that's the end of the story, like you're separated from God. And so this is not so much again about the duration of life, but rather like, how are you spending your life? Are you walking with God? And we can do things, right? Like to try and extend our life. Those are good things. Like you should try and exercise apparently, right? Those can be good things. Um, probably eat your vegetables, kale, it's gross, but try and, you know, stomach it, right? Like all those sorts of things. We live in a culture today that like we tend to track as we even think about walking, right? Like I'm guessing by show of hands, some of you track how much you walk, how many steps did you get, 
right? My watch reminded me on my drive here this morning, hey, Jamie, uh, you watched too much football uh, yesterday. You might wanna get up and move just a tiny little bit, right? Um, it didn't quite say it like that, but that's how I read Siri's responses to me on my watch, right? She's just got a lot of snark, right? She's got an attitude and she's just like, hey, get off the couch, right? Like I did not get the steps in, but we have these things, right? That kind of help us monitor it and all of that, that stuff. And that's not bad. But at the end of the day, as we think about this imagery of walking with God, it's less, again, about the number of steps or the duration, but more about who are you walking with? Are you walking with God? Are you walking in his path? Are you following Jesus who says he's the way, the truth, and the life? Like you cannot simultaneously walk with one group of people one way and walk with Jesus in another direction. It's like actually impossible. And so this language here that this passage, I believe is asking us to consider just a, at a high level is this like, how is your walk specifically with God? Not just the things that you're doing to advance your career, the things that you're doing to extend your life as important as all those things might be, but like, how is your walk with God? Are you walking with him? It's a picture, friends, anytime the scriptures use this, it's a picture of like intimacy, of closeness, I don't know if you're like this, but I, I know like something my wife and I, like we, we enjoy going on walks, particularly when we get to get like out of Florida and go for like a walk or hike in the woods, right? And maybe you've had this experience where um, you pull up to the trailhead, right? And there's somebody that just pulled up like right around the same time. And I'm like, you have just ruined my day, all right? Um, you fellow image bearer, I love you, but get out of the woods, man, leave me alone, all right? Um, so that's my own thing to work through. And so as we'll get ready to head out, like I'll either say to Heather, quick, like, it's taking too long to get their backpack. Like, let's, let's start out because I want to create some separation. I want to create a little bit of space, right? Or like if we happen to be walking and they're coming up behind, like behind getting a little too close, I'll just be like, hey, let's pause. We'll act like we're getting some trail mix or something and let them pass, all right? Because at the end of the day, like I want to have that conversation. I want that space to enjoy a conversation with my wife to talk about the things of life that matter. And some stranger just like walking up, being within earshot. I don't want anything to do with that. Like I want to guard that right now. That might just be a weird idiosyncrasy and I get that. But carry that, that picture. Like God is inviting us to this communion with him. That's what this is talking about. And Enoch walked with God. And so if we're gonna see this invitation to consider this question, like how's your walk with God? We have to start by looking at a contrast. Now it's a contrast that if you were here last week, Rusty did a great job introducing this, particularly at the end of Genesis 4. As you see this family line that's, it goes from Adam and then Cain who kills his brother Abel. And you begin to see this, this lineage. And there's really this contrast between Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 that I think showcase for us again, you either can walk in the way of Cain of this world, ultimately following. If you're not following Jesus, there's no neutral ground. You're not just like, oh, well, I'm just doing my own thing. Like if you're doing your own thing, you're, you're actually following not Jesus, but the enemy of God. Or you can be walking with God. And to help us with this for a moment, because there's some beautiful structure. There's nothing in Genesis 5, friends, that's an accident. There's no detail here that hasn't been strategically placed 
by the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's more than we have time to get into, but there are things in here, like if you're looking to just sort of nerd out on it, like there are details in here that are just fascinating. So when I said, hey, we're gonna get into the weeds for a moment, this is that spot, okay? Um, and to get into the weeds, we need to talk about 10, seven, and Sumerian. And you're like, are you trying to rhyme? Kinda, sorta, all right? Uh, but these are important things that we need to look at because there are things happening in Genesis chapter five about particular numbers. And then we wanna talk about something that has been discovered in the last couple hundred years that actually speaks to what's going on here. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So first, 10. If you went and read Genesis chapter four, you would see from Adam to Cain and then so on and so forth. By the end, you meet a man named Lamech and then he has three sons. And it really lays out for us that there are 10 sons, all right? That's Genesis four. But now if we go back, if we were to read again, Genesis chapter five, it's speaking of these 10 other sons, 10 other generations. It goes from Adam after Abel is killed, that there's Seth, and then now oh, there's this other family line. And it tells the story of moving from Adam to Noah. And there's gonna be all kinds of things kind of overlap between Adam and Noah that we're gonna get to in the coming weeks as we get into the flood account, all right? But just know this, it's setting things up right now. There's this intentional contrast between what you have are kind of these 10 sons at the end of Genesis four, and you have these 10 sons that are spoken of in Genesis chapter five. But more than that, if we zero in, not just on the number 10, as important as that is, and that shows up. I mean, there's literally, there's other genealogies that we'll get to, like you get to later in the book of Genesis. Again, it speaks of 10 generations, not because there weren't other ones in between, but it's kind of this literary device to just tell this story. And it's trying to have this holistic picture of things. And embedded in this, there's a detail about seven. And the detail is this, that as you read through the account, in Genesis chapter four, what Rusty did a great job unpacking last week is you are introduced to a man named Lamech. Lamech is the seventh of the sons that are listed. And you can read about him back in verses 19 to 24. Let's just say this, this would probably be, I think a fair summary. Lamech isn't somebody who was interested in walking with God. Lamech instead viewed himself functionally as God. Lamech took advantage of the grace and the mercy of God. Lamech was so like crazy, prideful, arrogant, right? That he literally at one point composes a worship song to himself as he gathers his multiple wives and then begins to sing his own praises. You don't believe me? It's right here. I'll read it to you. Lamech said to his wives, Genesis 4, 23, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. There's nothing about Lamech that we would say, that is honorable, that's beautiful. No, it is spiraling toward chaos. It was bad enough that Cain killed Abel, and now we have this man. And so there's this whole trajectory of that family line. Like some of you are literally like, maybe you're starting to dread the holidays. They're getting closer. You're like, oh man, my family's crazy. Like, it's not this crazy though, right? Like, I mean, this is like next level crazy. Like all the stuff that's going on in here, right? It's been bad from the very beginning. There's all this stuff that's taking place. And so that's the seventh person. But then as we read Genesis 5, and I read through that as we were going, look, well, who's the seventh? And you could probably guess who it is. It's where the pattern is disrupted because it doesn't say, and he died. It tells us about our friend Enoch, that Enoch walked with God. Think about that contrast there, 
right? You got one who's out walking, doing his own thing, or you've got Enoch who is walking with the Lord. There's that closeness, there's that intimacy. There's one that surrendered to God himself. It tells us in verse 22, he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And so friends, I just put before you, we have to consider these things that this contrast is intentional. It's like, pay attention to all the listings, pay particular attention to person seven, the seventh son in each of these lists. Because every single day, you and I, we live in contested space. We are being discipled. There is not anyone in this world that's neutral. Everybody's being discipled by some narrative, some message, something we're taking in. And it's either about Jesus and his grace and his life and about all of this points to him, right? And about the life that he brings and the flourishing life and an invitation to walk with him all of our days or being discipled in the ways of Lamech. C.S. Lewis profoundly puts it this way in Mere Christianity. He says this, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable, innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with self itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature, that is heaven, the presence of God. That is its joy and peace and knowledge and power. And to be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. I'm on a path, you're on a path. And there's one path that leads to life. We hear about that in the life of Enoch. Now, that contrast, all right? If you're like, whoo, yeah, all right, that's in the weeds. You got the 10, you got the seven, all right? But I mentioned this whole thing, the Sumerians, all right? Um, we're gonna go into the weeds just a little bit more. I think this is cool. You can tell me afterwards if you didn't think it's cool or you can keep your opinions to yourself. I don't actually care. But listen, like, I, I think there's some fascinating things that are going on here at a whole other level. So in this series, if you've been here some of the weeks, you know that, one of the things that we've looked at is that Moses is not writing this in a vacuum, that there are competing stories. There are competing creation stories, creation accounts, right? Like we've looked at some of these Babylonian stories, these Sumerian stories, right? That's what I mean by Sumerian, like all of this, right? And they're usually out of like war and bloodshed and the gods fighting. And there's nothing about being image bearers. There's nothing about God out of the overflow of his love creating this world. It's usually out of conflict. That's the other the other cultures, the other narratives. And Moses likely was aware of those things. And so he would write this in such a way not to give us exact details about like how old the earth is or any of that, but really kind of this polemic to say, don't buy into that. I'm gonna tell you the one true story. It's gonna evoke worship, but it's gonna remind you of the worth and the value and the beauty and the dignity that you have as a fellow image bearer. So all of that's going on. 
Now, in the 1800s, all right, there were different discoveries that were being made by the British in particular, um, as they finally got to travel to particular parts that today we would know as like Iran and Iraq and different parts of Turkey, right? And there were different things that were discovered. And one of the things that they began to discover were these tablets that spoke of histories or accounts of things like worldwide floods, about people protecting the animals during the flood. Like, does that sound familiar, right? We're gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself a bit, but there's all these sort of competing stories, stories that seem to overlap a bit with even what we read here in the Bible. And one of the things that they discovered has come to be known as the list of kings of Samaria or the Samarian king list. And what's so fascinating about these discoveries that they've made is it literally tells the story. Here we are, we're back to 10. It's 10, it's the account of 10 royal figures who existed, who ruled and reigned leading up to a worldwide flood. Now, what do we have here in Genesis chapter five? The account of 10 generations of sons to be an image bearer, as we've looked at, means you're a vice regent, you're a ruler. It's the account of 10 generations of rulers under the sovereign rule of God leading up to what? To a worldwide flood. And in this particular stuff that has been discovered, you can go read about this. If you thought the ages of like Methuselah were a long time, right? Uh, these supposed like kings and rulers live tens of thousands of years. So you got one guy that lived 31,000 years and like it's just huge amounts, right? And in this, they're telling a particular story. Well, there's one particular, if we talk 10 and let's talk seven again, okay? In the list, the Sumerian king list, there is a king who rules in a particular city called Sippar, right? The man's name is this, Enmedaronkai, right? Maybe, is that maybe how you say it? I don't know. I literally was walking around the house, my wife will attest to this, right? I was like, I don't know how to say this word. So I've been practicing it, right? Like I was watching football last night. I'm practicing saying this. I don't even know how to say it right now. Like I had it this morning. I do not have it right now, all right? Um, and as I was walking around the house, Heather was like, can you just shut your mouth for a moment, right? And I'm like, Edmedarunkai, all right. But anyway, there, there's, there's the thing, all right? So I won't try and say it, but he was the seventh king ruling in this ancient city called Sippar, all right? Now, I'm like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Well, again, Let's pay attention to contrast. Is, is this, was there just a contrast between Lamech and Enoch? Or is there also another way that Moses putting this together is like, hey, it's not just even these two lines, these two families in the biblical account. I wanna point something else out to you. And so what I think is so fascinating is this particular ruler, all right, that's referenced in this list of kings, all right, he lives in this town, Sippar, and he is this one who's been there, the story goes, put by the gods, and the God, like the patron deity of Sippar is the sun God, Shamash, all right? So there you have this particular God or this particular ruler who worships the patron deity, the sun God. And it tells us that that sun God actually took this ruler and gave him all sorts of insight and knowledge and powers of divination to help create like what would become like Babylonian culture which if you're wondering if Babylonian culture is like, is that good or bad? We're gonna go with bad, okay? Um, advanced, but not in the way, not honoring to the Lord. And so this particular one, that's, that's the story, okay? Now, let's go back to our friend who is the seventh in the line told in Genesis chapter five, thus all the days of Enoch, it tells us, the one who walked with God were 365 years. Scholars that I've 
been studying it this past week, would say, listen, we don't know for sure, but it would seem like more than just a coincidence that the seventh king corresponds to a friend Enoch who walked with God and that he lived 365. Does that, does that number ring a bell about anything, right? That this one who's in Sippar, who is there, who's got this special access, who's taken by the sun God, right? As we, as we think about like our, our solar calendar year in 365, is it possible that this is just another dig, another elbowing, another like, all right, you've got your stories, but I'm talking about Enoch. I'm talking about the one who was taken by the one true God who gets to be in the presence of God. Like you have your stories, all right? That may be true, but I wanna tell you the true story. Friends, there's more that's going on here. Like Moses is trying to disciple his people against the competing narratives of the world. And I know this stuff doesn't sound necessarily like our stories, but there are things that we buy into. There's narratives that we believe about what is true and what does it mean to have the good life and a flourishing life. And it's once again, just telling us over and over and over again, it's the way of walking with God. To walk with God is to be in the presence of God. And so with that, I want us to see that that calling is continuing. As we look back at Genesis Chapter five, look with me at the first couple of verses again. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man when they were created, named them humanity. We need to be astounded by this, that this is a reference back to Genesis one and two. God created male and female in his image, full of worth, value, dignity, And when this shows up in Genesis chapter five, here's what it's saying. That call to walk with God, that call to be an image bearer, that call to be a ruler who puts on display what it looks like, who bears witness to what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of the one true God. None of that went away because of Genesis three in sin. Yes, you're east of Eden. Yes, many of you are moving away from the presence of God. Yes, there's gonna be death for you, even if you live almost a thousand years, all right? But you're still an image bearer. And even the people who are walking opposite of everything that God would have for them are still image bearers. This has not gone away. The image has been tarnished and and marred in significant ways, sure. But the calling continues. You and I are called to be image bearers. The people in Genesis 5 were called to be image bearers. We're all called to walk with God. We're called as Genesis 2.15 said this, this cultural mandate, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And that word I wanna zero in on for a moment. That Hebrew word where it says he took the man, that means God created Adam, breathes life into him, right? Forms him from the dust, breathes the breath of life into him. And then tells us that he took him from where he had made him and he placed him, he put him, or really the idea here that ties to Noah's name is that he rested him in the garden. He took Adam and where did he put him? He rested him in the presence of God where he could walk with God in the cool of the day. And now when we go back and we continue reading about our friend Enoch, Enoch walked with God, verse 24, and he was not. The pattern is disrupted. He doesn't die, but rather it says for God. And here's the word. It's the same one in Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took him. So Adam was taken by God and placed in the garden, the very presence of God, the temple of God. 
the place for deep communion and fellowship. And now what do we learn about Enoch? The one who walks with God, God took him and brought him into the presence of God to walk with him for all of eternity. And friends, this is what we're made for. This is what we long for. Now, how did that happen? Will we get further insights as we turn to the New Testament and we read in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 serves as sort of this like hall of fame of faith of sorts. And that doesn't mean that people are perfect. They're messed up just like you and me, dependent upon God's grace through and through. There's only one perfect person. There's only one who's perfectly walked with God. That's this Jesus himself, the God man. But Hebrews 11 does give us some insight and it gives us insight even into our friend Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. I mean, what if that was said of you and me and us together as a church? That's why we, like, we brought delight to our God. Oh, might that be true? Like, that's the place we want to be. Not because we have anything to earn, but we just live in glad response to his grace. What does it look like? How did he please God? Well, verse six tells us, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is giving us insight and further insight into Enoch walking with God. It means he walked by faith and not by sight. And he walked with a lot less information than I have. I mean, at this point in the story, he doesn't, he doesn't know anything about Noah. He doesn't know Abraham. He doesn't know the covenants God's going to make. He doesn't know anything about David. And he certainly doesn't know anything at this point about the promised son of David, the promised one who would come and one day would crush the head of the serpent. He knows there's a longing for that, but, but he doesn't know. And yet the invitation for him and here for us on the other side of the cross and resurrection is saying, look, will we walk by faith? Will we trust God in the midst of whatever it is that you carried in here this morning? Because you're carrying something. I'm carrying something. We're, we're carrying lots of things, lots of questions, lots of doubt, lots of frustrations, lots of things that we're not sure how it's all going to resolve. Lots of doubts about does, does God love us? Does he care for us? How is he going to work in, in, in all of this? How do I walk with God in the midst of just this chaotic world and culture? What does it even look like to be a faithful disciple of Jesus? Like there's a lot of questions about those things. But the way it says we live in a way that brings delight to God is not to have all the answers and have it all figured out, but is in a glad dependence and surrender on the one who is the God. And to live in a way where we're like, I just wanna walk with you. I wanna give you my burdens. I wanna hear your voice. I wanna be in your presence. I want, I want time with you. I want, I want to fight for that time. Friends, the invitation is like, will you and I walk by faith? And I think we know the answer of like, yeah, I want to do that. But we also know that the stories we've been looking at here throughout the book of Genesis, particularly as we got into Genesis 3 over the past couple of weeks, it's not just a story that's true because it happened. It's also true because it continues to happen. And this whole idea of something being taken. That same word, that same imagery, that same language is used in Genesis 3, that the same temptation exists for us here, that we're gonna wanna live more by sight and what I can do and what I can achieve and what I think that I need rather than by faith. 
This is why if we went back just a couple of pages, Genesis 3 verses 6 and verse 8 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, here's our word again. She took and ate and she also gave some to her husband was with her and he ate. And there's this interesting interplay here between the taking, took the fruit and the disruption of the walking. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's implied that this would have been the most looked forward to time of the day, but not anymore. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The taking disrupts the walking. Tim Mackey, the theologian, the guy who runs the the Bible project, talks about it as this inversion of taking. Here, his words put put up here, he says, this Enoch's way of life embodies, friends, the communion with God that Adam and Eve experienced and forfeited in the garden. But notice also the inversion of taking. Adam and Eve's taking results in the loss of walking with God. While Enoch's walking with God, what does it result in? It results in his being taken, taken into the presence of God where he was created to be. And all of this is leading to these last couple of verses where there's this setup. It's like, how is this going to resolve? Is there hope for you? And it's cool about Enoch, but what about the rest of us, right? Because there are people that came after him and guess what? They died and they're sons and daughters and they died and so on and so forth. Like what is going to happen? And at the conclusion of this, we get this hope. There's this man named Lamech, a different one from Genesis 4. They didn't have a lot of name creativity back then. So like, we'll go with Lamech again. Like bad idea, but anyway, this is Noah's dad. Um, and, and Lamech, all right, pronounces the, these words. He's looking, all right? And the, Noah's name itself speaks of rest, relief, comfort, all right? He's looking for this comfort from the curse. So we drop down to verses 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and he called his name Noah. And notice what he says about his boy. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this is Genesis 3 language, right? This one shall bring us relief. This one shall bring us comfort. This one will bring rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. There's a cry there. There's a desperation. There's a a recognition like, We're made to walk with God. We're made to be in his presence. And how in the world are we ever going to get back there? And maybe this is the one. And there's gonna be things, friends, that we'll see over the next couple of weeks where there's like these dots that hopefully will be connecting in in fun and sort of profound ways about ways that it shows Noah to be like another coming of Adam, right? And how the ark really is like the garden of Eden because who's you you had Adam with all the animals and naming them and talking to them and having dominion over them. And now you got just a large boat with all that stuff. It's like a microcosm of of the garden, right? It's gonna end up on a high mountain and sacrifice is gonna be offered. I mean, there's like so many profound things that are about to happen. And it's all leading up to us thinking like, well, maybe Noah is the one, but we know enough to know that he's not. He's broken, he's sinful. It tells us a few verses into chapter six. In fact, verse nine tells us it's the only other person that's named this way besides Enoch, Noah walked with God. And so there is a faithfulness, there's a desire, but he's also not perfect. 
And so there's this reality of the curse and you hear his father's heart as a dad praying and just longing, like maybe somewhere out of this broken world from this earth, maybe there would, maybe the curse somehow would be broken. Maybe there won't be the painful toil. Maybe there won't be the misery. Maybe there won't be just the meaninglessness that the writer of Ecclesiastes speaks of. Maybe we can get back to purposeful, intimate communion, walking with God. And Paul so beautifully ties this idea of curse in unexpected ways where he speaks in the, the letter we know as Galatians and he speaks of one who is, who is hung on a tree. To be hung on a tree, what you did to somebody that was cursed and how this curse is going to end up being reversed. How does God himself bring, like deal with it and bring about redemption? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus deals with the curse by faithfully walking with God, walking all the way to a Roman cross where he was nailed, where he was crucified, where the curse that should have been pronounced on you and me was instead put on him. And he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's doing all of this to reverse the effects of the curse so that we might be restored to a relationship, to fellowship, to intimacy, to walking with God. As Paul picks up these themes and says, friends, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And lest you get proud and think that faith, all right, like Enoch walked by faith. Yeah, look at him, follow him. The faith itself is a gift. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Don't get big headed about that. Like even the faith you have to experience God's grace, it's all a gift, not a result of works that no one may boast. And then he tells us this, Here's what you've been restored to for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You don't do it to earn anything, to prove anything. You've got nothing to prove. Jesus has done it. You're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You've experienced his true rest, something Noah could never bring for us. He says this, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And here's our word again, that we should what? We get to walk in them. We get to continue to be image bearers. We get to continue to put on display what it looks like when the rule and reign of Jesus comes to our lives and we gladly surrender to him. And we say, we're gonna do our finances and relationships and sexuality and entertainment and everything like wholly gladly surrendered and submitted to you. Jesus, I wanna walk with you. That's where we find life. And so friends, that's the gift that we have. This is what Jesus has come to do, to reverse the curse, to bring the comfort we need so that we all like Enoch, we get to be restored to the presence of God. And it's imperfectly right now, but we get a taste of it. Friends, we even get a taste of it in this meal, that we get to walk forward together, that we get to experience this means of God's grace that he's given to us. What a gift that is. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you be preparing our hearts even now to, as we've received your word, that now we would receive these elements, that you would use them to sustain us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. We bring all of our doubts, our insecurities, our fears, our anxieties, all of it. Like we, we surrender to you and we, we come desperate for your grace. 
remind us afresh through this meal, through times of prayer, times of confession, times of singing, of what it looks like to walk with you. Jesus, we thank you that you came and walked among us. And we thank you that you so faithfully walked all the way to a cross. So we might be restored to fellowship, a fellowship that we were created for with our creator. And so God, work for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.